the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry, as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before I introduce our guest today, I do want to throw out, we've got a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. If you're enjoying the podcast, definitely consider throwing me a buck a month to help out with expenses. Today, I have Lewis and Nick of Proletarian Contrarian joining me, and we're actually going to be taking a look at the 2006 anime film Paprika from Satoshi Kon. Lewis and Nick, welcome back to the happy hour. Thanks. It's uh, good to be here. And I'm pleased that I convinced both of you to watch anime. Yeah, <laughs> finally. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having this me. This is my favorite uh, anime. Mm. And the, I mean, what have I seen? I've seen uh, Akira. I've seen this. Okay. I've seen a few, a handful of episodes of Neon Genesis, Genesis Evangelion. Yeah. Uh, I gotta, and gotta uh, what else? I've seen some of Lane as well. Like, Miyazaki. Maybe half of half of lane and that's the extent of my anime experience oh man i think the next thing i'm going to have us watch is um is uh, princess mononoke from miyazaki oh that yeah that's a good call definitely yeah you know i mean nick has to weepify everything he touches (laughs) um so this is his opportunity you have yeah no it's true i remember when we went to see in new york one of the worst uh, studio ghibli films oh my god uh, the ocean waves. The ocean wave. Yeah, that 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 was non Miyazaki Ghibli. Non Miyazaki. Yeah, it was pretty. I can say. Like, yes. Yes. But uh, yeah, no. I remember you fell asleep. Oh yeah, big time. You have seen more Satoshi Kon movies than I have. I've seen all of his his films except Millennium Actress. Right. So yes, I think I beat you. And only um, by uh, one because I've seen Tokyo Godfathers and you haven't. Yeah, not, not that he, he unfortunately doesn't have as quite big a body of work as, as he deserved to have. Um, I know he died in 2010. I think he had pancreatic cancer and he was only like 40. It was, yeah. it was really tragic. Yeah, it was um, like he found out and it was already, already like terminal. So it's, it's pretty awful. Yeah, yeah. There, there, was, there was no chance for him, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, the other thing I'm trying to get both you and Coop to watch at some point would be his, his mini series, his one, his one season and done, Paranoia Agent, which has a lot in common with Paprika. Apparently, all of Cohn's ideas for, for movies that he couldn't fit into his movies, he kind of collected and, um, and turned into a, to an actual story for, for Paranoia Agent. The last thing I'll say about Paranoia Agent is it's, it's like it predicted Twitter, essentially. <laughs> like, it, it came out, I think, in 2008, and it was like very, very prescient as to how clout and, and social media and the internet uh, affect people and, and change their perception of reality. Maybe we should start out by doing a little... Uh... Little plot synopsis. I'll run it down really quick. So it takes place in the then future year of 2012. Remember this movie came out in 2006, um, but it's kind of one of those five minutes into the future. What will technology bring to us uh, now? And the idea is that this department in, it's, it's probably some kind of gov- government agency, psychiatric health company or whatever, or firm, uh, they, d- they developed something called the DC Mini, 
which is a which is a device that lets someone enter into the dreams of another. And their ostensible goal is to use this in forms of psychotherapy, in forms of other treatment of mental illness, in the hope uh, that the inventor of the DC Mini, who's this obese man-child um, genius director, they want to use it to essentially eliminate mental illness. And uh, kind of the agent, the titular Paprika, is the alter ego of one of the psychiatrists on the team. Um, her name is Atchun. And when she adopts her paprika persona, she enters into the dreams of, of other people and she uh, helps helps them confront their dreams and, and acts as like a grounding, guiding kind of force. And when the movie opens, she's in the dreams of a police detective who's haunted by guilt uh, in failure of not being able to catch a murder suspect. Also around another team are kind of this mad scientist guy who acts as like tech support. And then there's the chairman of the company or of the organization, I think it's a government organization, who espouses like the, a lot of anti-scientific, anti-technology perspectives. Um, he considers it like a sin to enter into the dreams of other people. The most common word they use for, for the people who steal the DC minis uh, are terrorists. It's a terrorist act. I think that's like explicitly, explicitly a line. It is an act of terrorism to enter into the dreams of someone else. Um, and eventually, of course, it's revealed that the chairman is the one who perpetrated the theft of of the DC minis and who is who is using the terrorists as puppets to um to convince the government that that, that these things should be destroyed and, and that they the DC mini prop device should not exist. Paprika is captured. Um, she is forced to be separated from At Chan. The director's lackey is about to essentially like consume her soul, but then the police detective who had also been like stuck in in this dreamscape uh, comes and saves her. Um, unfortunately, they, there's been so much messing around with the membrane between dreaming and reality that the two kind of the membrane dissolves and the two the two realms dream, dream and reality become one. The director, because he had been in dreamscape, has like this demonic omnipotent form and he starts to swallow all of Tokyo. But then Achan and Paprika, who are there, they her, the two aspects of her personality merge from discrete separate beings into one gestalt entity. Uh, she consumes the director. And then she realizes her repressed feelings of love for the inventor of the DC Mini. Uh, they get together. And then the police detective who had uh, childhood dreams of being a, a, a movie director uh, with his dead best friend goes to see a movie on Paprika's recommendation. <sighs> <laughs> it honestly, the way it's paced, it honestly does feel like a whole, almost like TV show, but with all the fat cut off of it. Yeah. A lot is packed in, and a lot of like individual separate character arcs are present. Yeah, the runtime yeah. is like 90 minutes, and it's pretty... Yeah, there's a lot going on. We were talking about how we wanted this episode to structure, and, and one of the difficulties of... One of the difficulties, but one of the opportunities of discussing cinematography uh, as it results to... Or as, as it relates to um, animation is um, there's a lot more latitude. There's a lot more ceiling for crazy innovation, but then that kind of means like your animation... I expect a lot from it because you can do anything when you're when you're constructing the cinematography of a, of a cartoon because there's no limits. But Paprika definitely knocked it out of the park in that front as as far as I'm concerned. Typically, cinematography is like the biggest focus of what I talk about on a lot of the movie episodes that I do, and I think yeah. very much a different setup here. Obviously, it's a, like more of a challenge. I think actually here are my biggest areas where I'm going to be topic wise will be focused on the psychoanalytic content, which is just a gold mine of all sorts of different psychoanalytic perspectives that the film is referencing and taking and, and so forth. Usually I keep cinematography down the list, but I think perhaps we can start there. For me, I visually wasn't 
aside from maybe, I don't know, perhaps five, a handful of scenes, maybe five or six that were where I was, I noted, I wasn't that gripped by like the look overall of the movie. Yeah, I um. Well, you have to be a weeb like Nick. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's okay. You'll get there. He, <laughs> you'll get there. You, Maybe you know him for a while. Yeah. You, you keep knowing him. You'll get there. Yeah, I um. That's just my life. I'll let you talk now, Nick. It's fine. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, no, I, I I get what you mean. I I think a lot of it is pretty is shot pretty conventionally. I guess especially conventionally for like a high budget anime movie. There's a lot of scenes that are that are just very utilitarian and how and what they get across. And there, there is some crazy dream logic stuff. Like the, I remember there's one scene, I think Paprika is in like her superhero form and she, she's like flying through a dream city and she gets knocked over and the camera pans downward diagonally, but she's upside down. So she's falling up and then like the camera's falling, camera pans after her quickly. And it's like, you, you can't really do that without some kind of effect. Right, e- right. Even if that was like a real life matrix movie or something, you would still need to use visual effects for that. But it, it's, it integrates so well into the more realistic grounded scenes that a lot of a lot of the shots in this movie are very difficult to discern whether or not they happen in dreaming or reality. And I I think that kind of lack of crazy cinematography helps blend the two together, as well as the lighting, because like you think of the movie like The Matrix, which the the real world sections have a blue tint to them. In the artificial world, the, the Matrix world sections have a green tint to them to help you clearly and subconsciously distinguish the two scenes. There is no such division of lighting in, in Paprika. And I think the the lack of, well, not the lack, but the groundedness of a lot of the cinematography in both the dreaming and the, in the, the real world, quote unquote, sections, it helps make the whole movie more ambiguous as to what you're actually watching when it happens. Yeah, no, I think you're right, and and that's and that's the point of the film. Um, so it really it do, it does that well. The one subtlety that I think ha- is somewhat of a distinguishing factor in terms of the cinematography is the use of the traditional two D animation, hand drawn yeah. animation, and then the the use of you know three three D uh, CGI animation. And I th- I think some of the quote unquote dream sequences in in this movie tend to have some form of CGI uh, either be in the background or maybe a full character or um, some kind of even camera effect um, or camera movement, you know, because still, I think to this day, there's only so much you can do with 2D animation, right? You know, you see in a lot of animated films now when you want to do some some more advanced camera movement, you'll, you'll see CGI being used. So this film does that and it incorporates it into the theme of the film in, in so making it some more of the dream logic stuff is CGI. Like when they go to the, when they go to the abandoned um, amusement park, there's a ton of CGI in that, in that sequence. And a lot of that is actually, you know, in dream space. So, but again, it's, it's nuanced and it's not, yeah, that very obvious split like the matrix. To be sure the in, inserting CGI uh, sequences into into, into movies that are like nine, 95% traditionally hand-drawn. That, that, that is kind of a thing in anime. Um, it, was, it was more of a trend in the, in the arts, I, I, I want to say. And like, at, le- at least the more obvious distinction, just because the, the technology wasn't up to snuff as much as it, as much as it is today then. But yeah, no, I, I, I do think that's true, that it's, that's more of a dream sequence thing. But um, is it exclusively only happen in the dream sequences? Mm, probably not exclusively. Yeah. You know? but, um, and I think that's what the beauty of it as well. 
is yeah. that yeah. It, it blends um, effortlessly. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, one of the more obvious is definitely like the bar, the bar they go to. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like that's always all of that CGI, except like the people in the bar, like the bartenders and the, the detective and Paprika are not CGI, but like the whole bar is CGI. For some sequences, but there there are some scenes, I think like when the, that sequence, when the director's, mem- the detective's memories of being a kid and, and wanting to direct movies with his, with his best friend, like when those were playing behind him, like on a projection screen in the bar, I, th- I think that was traditionally drawn. Maybe. But yeah, the, the point is it goes back and forth. There's so many evocative moments like that bar. Visually, it reminded me of the bar from The Shining. Yeah. Um, yeah. There was totally a visual uh, reference there. Distinctly in that one of the early bar scenes, you have a move from the actual like bar setup to the back room where Paprika is. And mm. during that, you can very clearly see like it's more of this yeah. CGI style look. Yes, for sure. But I'd have to go back and watch... Mm-hmm. Maybe I, w- I might not have been paying as close of attention to catch sure. the bar itself, but definitely like it's a very clear. Like you can even kind of tell in the way that it, the frame moves and so forth. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, other other cinematographic 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 issues. Cinematic, cinematic, cinematic. Yeah, <laughs> cinematographic. <laughs> yeah, other cinematic things. Mise en scene, as the French say it. <laughs> what is what does mise en scene mean? It's basically like cinematography. Okay. Yeah. Position within the frame, utilization of positioning mm-hmm. of the yeah. camera and subject and character and angle. Compo- uh, it's like not just composition, mm-hmm. but I think maybe composition of the shot. Yeah. I, I, good? Yeah. I think it's every visual part of the shot. But I think even like tapping into some of the themat- thematic to the mm-hmm. logic behind the placement of the what the placement of the characters in the scene and lighting right. and so forth all well like what is that what is that evocative of right, right. um and they, they even touch on this blatantly so because the one of the characters the police detective who wanted to be a director when he was a kid he has this conversation with paprika in his dream it's in a movie theater and he calls out like the the 180 yeah. degree rule and they, they actually show it they they show a breach yeah, of the they draw a line yeah. and everything um yeah that that's the sequence i i New, I'm like, oh, that's that's Lewis's that's Lewis dream. dream. Yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> that is. I oh man, I wish I dreamed like that. No, my <laughs> dreams are horrifying. They really are for the most part. I'd rather not have them. I wish they were just like, oh, this quirky character explains. <laughs> that thematically was interesting because, like, the I, I guess this is moving away from cinematography a little bit, but like the the police detective, he he had a dream as a kid to be. To be a, a movie director, which is in the the movies as they're the the dreams as they're presented in this movie, like are are they're depicted as movies, right? Like the opening sequence is like this this list of different movie genres, and in each each one is a different dream of the director or the the police detective director. Yeah, there's the spy film. There's you know, the circus. Um, the Tarzan sequence. The Tarzan sequence. <laughs> Fuck yes, and. <laughs> I, I think that's interesting, like the the dif- distinction of like dreaming as something you do every night versus like a long-term goal for the future that you have in mind. It, it's the same word in English anyway, dream, or it, it, it is often, but they, they specifically use that word in the translation. Like you, you dreamed of being a director as a child, but like it, something happened when you were 17 and we can get into that later. 
but yeah, the, those those different sequences are are the the cinematography of those different dream genre sequences that that's done very well i think anyway like the circus scene is shot kind of surreal in in, in wild the the tarzan and the action sequences are shot like as action movies and then the, it, it switches effortlessly between those in that in that opening mm-hmm. sequence right yeah which again it's why this you know film could not be made into a live action movie like it's just right how how could you do it you know it's it's that sequence alone just the the opening sequence of the detective stream mm-hmm. everything with paprika uh his series of dreams right and then everything with paprika um during the opening credits i mean you couldn't it would just it would look like shit if you tried to do it all you know of course with cgi uh in a live action context it just mm-hmm. It would just look like a parody. This story, I think, practically really demanded to be told in animation because um, you can have kind of that cohesiveness of the grounded scenes, even even the the dream scenes that are like more conventionally shot and, and blocked and, and lit and, and everything, so they seem like normal normal real real life waking scenes. But then something happens and you realize, oh, this is a dream, which is how real dreams work. You, right. you think they're real until something crazy happens and, or even until you wake up, you think it's real. Mm-hmm. Um, so that effortlessness of presenting, lighting, blocking, and shooting scenes that take place in the dreams as if they're real. And then something, in, something on, on some dream logic thing happens and it doesn't break the visual tension. I think that's why this, this movie has to be animation. They should never do a live, live action version. Yeah. Definitely. No, I was reading that in 2009, they were shopping the rights around and like Wolfgang Peterson was going to direct it and just, no, I'm glad that didn't happen. Hope it never does. Maybe we should address the, um, the, the elephant, the, the dream elephant in the room right now. Christopher Nolan's Inception clearly t- <laughs> took a lot of inspiration from this. To the best of my Not knowledge. Not enough though, because it's really boring compared to <laughs> this movie. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I did fall asleep in Inception. Yes, I'm not surprised. The first time. I <laughs> not going to lie. It's so good at dreaming. He, he incepted that in your mind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Inception is, is the boring version of this. It's, it's the visually... It, it is the movie Lewis and I were kind of saying that they shouldn't make. <laughs> just because... Yeah, it's, it's true. A, it's, about, it's about heists and dreaming and, and implanting thoughts via dreams in other people's minds or, or, or stealing their dreams and... It, I mean, I mean, like individual story beats differ, but it, it is the same conceit as this. Oh yeah, definitely. Except it just it comes from a boring British man's mind, so the whole <laughs> dream is just about being James Bond, basically. Yeah, and um, I, I not to rag on, not to just turn this into a Christopher Nolan hate fest, but like, <laughs> but like just just to use it as a specific counter example to 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 Paprika here. I get like to the best of my memory, I haven't seen it in a while, but like to the best of my memory, a lot of the different cinematography choices that Nolan made for each of the different dream sequences in Inception, they're all fairly similar, but it, it doesn't work in the way that Paprika's kind of consistent cinematography does. I'd say Uh, it's just like very muddled in, in muddy and boring as like, as a lot of his movies are, but that, doesn't make it look like dreams that you think are reality. It just makes it look like a shitty action movie from 2010. 
you could almost forget that it's about dreams at some point, right? You know, it just really, honestly, it's it's just, it is an action movie. And yeah. it's, I guess, you know, if you take away the part that it's supposed to be about dreams, which can be very imaginative, then maybe it's just good, a good action movie, but it's not a very good movie about dreams. And that was always my biggest problem with that film. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking specifically the way that the dreams actually look too, as opposed right. to like in Paprika, you could arguably say the dreams look very much like the real life sections. And I think they do. And I think that's a strength and kind of part of the point. But also the, like the fantastical element makes it come, I don't know. It's a lot cooler than just like you said, just the regular kind of action movie look that no yes. one goes for. Yeah. We, we have things visually like, when Paprika, her skin gets peeled open and yeah. then Achan is brought out of inside of her. It like the, the verisimilitude of like, okay, like this, there's already some weird shit happening. It's just done just so it's done very casually. It's it's still like the, the content of it is shocking, but the way it's handled and presented is the, the tone is very like, okay, that's, that's, it's just normal. It's just a normal thing. Yeah. Or like even the, the parade of like, the the dolls and the the like traffic lights and crazy things that are on parade in yeah. paprika and even how like realistic it looks to to a degree mm-hmm. um especially when it comes into the real world and uh when the, when the real world and the dream world kind of combine right um it's just like yeah this is what i want to see in a movie about dreaming like i want to see some crazy shit mm-hmm. some of the best parts were I think the use of screens in particular were yep. fantastic. Yep. Those were some of the best choices that, uh, like stylistically for the visuals for me. For example, I think one time they just, ju- there's, I think there's two distinct scenes. One is with, in which they jump into, and I can't, I'm maybe mixing these up, but there's one where they jump into a TV screen specifically. And then I don't recall if it's sp- that same scene where they come out the video camera. Yep. Yep. within the dream yep. reality yes. they like mm-hmm. they could like start shooting out the lens yeah. the video into the dream space and then there's another one where they jump out i forget where they jump enter into the dream space but they whenever they jump out it's on like this moving truck that has like a image on the side and right. they jump out of that image into the dream the full on dream space i think what what's cool about that one too is the way they I think it's Paprika herself. She jumps into an advertisement for horse racing and she jumps yes. on one of the horses yeah, and rides yeah. off into yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when she leaves, she, she jumps out through like a moving truck yeah. and it's like coming down like a, a Venetian gondola or something. Yeah. That sounds, that sounds right. Um, from my memory. But yeah, no, it, it, it's, cr- it's crazy sequences like that and the way they blend seamlessly with this otherwise very grounded scene. Oh, it's a moving truck driving down a street in a city. Like what could be more normal than that? But then she jumps out. She 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 and the one of the professor characters jump out of like the the side of the truck. It's sequences like that are truly seamless. And that um personally I I was always second guessing myself is if any given scene was was a dream or happens in, in reality in waking life right. because of because of things like that. What was one of the other cooler visuals was like the uh, chairman whenever he grows the limbs basically as mm. as ostensibly like a vine vines or something like that up top he's almost like a centaur but the legs are this yes. organic like, almost viney. like a living tree or something yeah exactly yeah. right yeah, yeah it was pretty metal towards the end of the film yeah and when he um when he, he kind of reveals himself as like the the 
obvious uh, antagonist. Right? Yeah, 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 for sure. He meant he like merges dream bodies with his lackey, the character there, and uh, they they look like um, animal vegetable matter man from mm. from um, Doom Patrol. Yeah. <laughs> Just Animal, like, mineral, vegetable man. I yeah, think, that, something like that. That guy, uh, the yeah. Doom Patrol minor villain. He's he has like a Velociraptor head and a human head and like broccoli limbs, and that's like kind of what his merged form looked like. Hell yeah, yeah, it's true. Except he has like uh, hentai tentacle hands. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, the the integration of of the internet and like in screens and stuff into into dreaming, blending those together was effective impression um that's that's a little bit of what i was talking about is present in um in paranoia agent but it's it, it is such a pun here too one of my favorite lines i think is paprika says it don't you think dreams in the internet are similar they are both areas where the repressed conscious mind vents which is true it's true <laughs> <laughs> that's like a great perhaps segue into like this whole psychoanalytic stuff but i've got so much to go on in terms of psychoanalytic framework that i don't know if we want to remain in cinematography or like there's yeah anything else because i think that's like the bulk of the stuff that i have to point out is all related to this yeah i i kind of psychoanalytic uh reading of the film i was kind of half consciously i think leading towards it and on and on ramp on to the psychoanalytic stuff with with that because i'm I'm tapped out for cinematography myself just yeah, same. The the seamlessness I, it lends itself thematically to um, dreaming versus reality, and, and they're both ultimately the same. So I think in terms of, and this may be where I like make some of the psychoanalysts in the in the audience cringe with some of my like half ass okay. takes <laughs> or like reading uh, like half understood uh, readings of Freud and, and Lacan and so forth. But oh yes. One of the big things in the film is it, that gets directly referenced is Oedipus. Yeah. Yes. And along those lines, um, one thing that's also like interesting about not only this mention of Oedipus in general, but the connection to dreams and Freud's you know work, the interpretation of dreams, mm-hmm. is actually where he first illustrate or brings on Oedipus as a as a psychoanalytic model of the unconscious or like the development of the unconscious in the individual and the subject. I guess um, visually kind of like as a last touchstone to the cinematography there, one of the things I picked up early on, there is a, a painting of, of Oedipus versus the Sphinx in yes. the director's uh, in his office. Yeah. Um, and later on when, when Paprika is fighting uh, the chairman's uh, lackey character, um, she, she transforms into, into the Sphinx. Yeah, he transforms yeah. into Oedipus, cool. and they, they they actually battle within within the the dream confines of that painting. Yeah. So interestingly enough, there are three separate paintings that reference Oedipus. Hell yes. Which also like the Oedipal triangle, right, is between the the offspring, the the paternal, and the maternal. That's the tr- standard Oedipal triangle that you see. So it's kind of appropriate that you have that. Um, motif of three that gets combined in these different um, these different visual representations. One of them is Gustave Moreau, and I think that's the Oedipus and the Sphinx mm-hmm. that we see Paprika actually turn into the Sphinx itself. Right. right. At some point, the others there's a one by Francois Xavier Fabre, 
which is also an Oedipus and the Sphinx uh, depiction. And then there's one by Jean-Auguste Dominique Ingres. And I'll post, I think, links to those paintings in the show notes for anyone that wants to kind of take a look at them. I mean, it's nothing all that special or noticeable, notable other than to just note, okay, Oedipus, this sort of motif of three within Oedipus is just obviously a call out to this psychoanalytic content, right? And we're looking at the plot trajectory of the film, right? It's, you know, the DC mini device itself is derived as a form of treatment for psychological issue, right? It's like for psychiatry or whatever, presumably, although that is not, that's not really a big focus of the narrative space or the dialogue itself is the actual applications for the DC mini. It's more so about this kind of odyssey of dream space and these very large kind of thematic ideas related to the unconscious and dreams and images and as well as this sort of digital intermediary space that's I think developing right with the film coming out in in 2006 you know that sort of presupposes or predates really the I think the explosion of social media because I don't think Twitter was around quite until 2007 as just as an yeah. example and i think yeah. facebook had just at the time yeah had just dropped and was right. limited to like a collegiate audience at first before yeah. they opened mm. up facebook to the wider public so it's kind of yeah. an interesting there there were rumbles then too of like development um, i think the the like the blog scene was very big then. yeah oh um, for sure yeah like especially Zanga. in japan zangas yeah live yeah. journal um tumblr, yeah. tumblr was oh, big yeah. at the time tumblr is still big yeah yeah but I, I think Cohn as a as a just as a, as an individual person, he always kind of had his his finger on the pulse of of that early scene. Like I said, a, a lot of paranoia agent deals with this kind of subject as like the internet as a shared collective dream yeah. of, of humanity as a whole. This goes to kind of like a machinic unconscious um... <laughs> happy hour. <laughs> <laughs> right. Machine unconscious demon hours. But I want to get too far into that. Go ahead, yeah. Lewis. You had you had something you wanted to bring no, up. No, I was just going to say, I think, like, put a pin um, yeah, I think even Perfect Blue, there's a lot of internet stuff in that film. Perfect Blue predicted the drama that BreadTube goes with currently. <laughs> yeah, it's when did uh When did Lane come out? Because I feel like there's definitely a lot of, like there's some similarities here with, with Lane in terms of, it's got to be after this film because I feel like it integrates the internet more directly. Oh, Serial Experiments Lane came out in 98. 98. Oh, wow. Damn. That's crazy. <laughs> this idea I've been thinking like kind of in the way, you know how they always say porn is like the, the right, first the early bleeding edge of, of technology. technology. Yeah. I think in mm. some ways you can draw an analog with anime, but in terms of like thematic content, at least in terms of current contemporary bleeding edge, like internet trends just because anime the production process and the fandom is so incredibly online arguably more than any other media i can think of it certainly presents ideas and themes as they relate to that sphere of reality uh, a lot sooner than a lot of other things do yeah it's pretty wild i mean i've seen similar things in other mediums like there's a book a cosmopolis that kind of right came out i think in 2003 and it really predicted a shitload of stuff like 2008 and like Occupy Wall Street. So like it's yeah. not unheard of for this to happen, but it's crazy when it does is like yeah. so 
incredibly spot on with the way that yes and that early too 98 is very early for like yeah. oh yeah <laughs> internet shit and um definitely yeah i think oh, um, perfect blue is like 97 i think yeah damn yeah but i think you're right i think like there's something to be said about just a lot of you know the japanese popular culture that then right. american audiences you know uh, draw from and and make art out of themselves i mean even the matrix right i mean the matrix is heavily influenced by anime yeah. darren aronofsky's black swan was directly a um you know almost remake of or reimagining of perfect blue yeah um i'm sure christopher no someone who knows christopher nolan had some you know knowledge of paprika but his his weird western brain just like shooed it away and said no thank you no thank you i'm his going weird, for bond here his, his weird sexless western brain <laughs> most antiseptic mind in, in contemporary cinema that's a good thing though nick apparently that's what people say <laughs> yeah. I could hop in on this. I think what's kind of interesting is, okay, so Interpretation of Dreams for Freud, one of the earlier big, big works that Freud puts out where he first brings up on this notion of the Oedipus complex. Something else is kind of interesting is like at this time, and really even later on, even like in Beyond the Pleasure Principle, where which is later after, it's like post-World War, forget when Interpretation of Dreams is actually uh, first published. But beyond the pleasure principle is is 1920, I believe. And so something interesting here is this idea for Freud in interpretation of dreams is that dreams are wish fulfillment. Like that's their sort of function. And as we see, and I think even Freud begins to see post-war war, and that's when beyond the pleasure principle comes to the fore, is that you have, okay, like the kind of classical you know, at this point, it's cliche, PTSD dream where you wake up sweating, right? There's some type of traumatic event that is repetitive. You're having the same dream over, you wake up sweating, et cetera, right? Like that's such a fucking cliche in films yeah. now, right? But And it, it happens here right at that opening sequence when, yeah, they, when right. they come mm, over. Exactly. I think that diegetically within the film, it like helps us ground us. Like it, It's a visual language for saying, okay, everything you just saw was a dream, but he's awake now. So like it, the movie gives you this sequence of dreams. It kind of just drops you in right away. But then that that with, within within the pace of the action, that acts as like a as like okay, from at least this next scene will happen in the real world. So one thing that Freud says in Beyond the Pleasure Principle is that okay, maybe dreams now their function is wish fulfillment, but perhaps there was a time whenever that was not their first function of dreams. Perhaps in a more primordial developmental stage, there was a different function. And so then he starts to perhaps think about this in terms of, because the pleasure principle is sort of this notion that, okay, what is driving human behavior? It's this motion, the move towards pleasing the the body, pleasing the body somehow, whether it be like sexually food, whatever, consumption, etc. The idea of pleasure driving being sort of the driving force of the individual as they move through their society, like driving their actions as this principle to pleasure, to seek pleasure, right? So Freud starts to reevaluate this and beyond the pleasure principle, primarily because of this sort of PTSD experience of veterans, right? That are, they're having like this recurring dream where, you know, they wake up, et cetera. 
if the pleasure principle is driving behavior, then why does do these individuals repeat this traumatic experience? And I think that traumatic experience dream that the detective keeps having of chasing right. them, you know, at, at the end we find out this is themselves. He He's the killer he's chasing the in, killer, in that sequence. The killer in you is the killer in me to like quote the Smashing nice. Pumpkins kind of <laughs> thing. Do a sound drop here. Yeah, so I think there's a like interesting mapping on of of this kind of question or this question of interpretation of dreams between pleasure principle and the repetition of trauma. Mm-hmm. I think um, in the unconscious. And I think that comes across most clearly in in the chairman's lackey character cuz the the reason the chairman is able to convince him to to be on his side and like do his bidding essentially is cuz he's he's infatuated with paprika. Right. And right. um even when and when he has paprika pinned down in in dream space he pulls her open and pulls out Achan from her from her body. I mean, his whole character motivation is he he's infatuated with someone and he wants to have her. He he wants to fulfill his pleasure principle of um in, in this case, I presume at least part of it is like sexually. Right. And the director too, I believe he he wanted to he wants to be whole again in the sense physically, like he wants to be able to walk and he wants to have have the power that he doesn't have as as a, as a crippled character. I mean, I think that comes across in his like as his like ultimate motivation for oh, wait are you talking about you're talking about the chairman now versus the i forget the doctor's name that was in love with uh paprika well i'm saying both of them both both of their motivations are are to fulfill their pleasure principle the doctor that's in love with paprika the one that acts as the chairman's lackey he he's sexually infatuated with paprika mm-hmm. the chairman himself he wants to he, he wants to have power he wants to transcend the, his bodily limitations of not being able to walk which I, which I interpret as him being motivated by his pleasure principle. It's interesting, actually, though, the reversal here is that the young doctor's lust, the, his desire for paprika, mm-hmm. is actually what ends up breaking down. Yes. That's what actually what costs or what contributes to the chairman ending up losing Killing, this, yeah. this sort of battle. Yeah. Because it was like this pure desire for paprika that he had that sort of controlled him so in that sense he's following perhaps his pleasure principle and then missing right like he's right he lacks there's and here's where he can go lacanian because desire he wants what he wants to is to be desired back by paprika by the other right Mm. which is like essentially for lacan that's what desire is desire is the desire to be desired it's sort of like recognizing ourselves like we are we're sort of looking at ourselves or we're creatures that are to be looked that are looked at, and so we try to en- right. we try to envision and construct ourselves by almost imagining what we look like to other people based on, I guess, interaction or what have you. That even comes across with uh, Chan herself because we we learn at the end that she she was in love with and I have the character's name now, Tokita. The, right, she's the been repressing yes. her her mm. own romantic feelings. Right for this specific character. Right. The inventor Tokita mm-hmm. of the DC Mini. Eventually she she admits her feelings for them and they get together at the end of the movie. But yeah, we we get that repressed memory of them like, or at least the, the, the scene that we're not shown when it first happens when he's stuck in the elevator and they they comfort each other. That that was like a literal repressed memory on her part as, as because it wasn't depicted earlier on in the film when it happened. What's kind of interesting too, like is this, uh, that this, 
film deals with too is this notion, I guess, to build on that is you have this ideal self that you create mm-hmm. and to as a sort of way to strive sort sort of towards. And so, you know, we were sort of always in, we don't know ourselves, right? Because of the, the unconscious, like there's this unknowable, indescribable portion of us that is part of us and helps create who we are. This lack in the Lacanian sense, there's a, a hole in us to be very reductive, right? And that is why we have desires because we need something. We need mm-hmm. love or we need shelter or we, we need food. So we have external de- desires that, you know, we learn to as we're developing as, as like infant, right? So that's where Oedipus comes into because you're sort of, you're relying on crude ability to understand yourself and to understand, okay, whenever I make a noise that whenever I enunciate, whenever I'm vocalizing, that causes the mother to come or whatever, right? To feed me or whatever the case may be, right? So those need, it's like the the lack is what generates the spoken, the utterance, the enunciation. Yeah, I need milk. I'm hungry. Sure. Or I need to be changed or et cetera, et cetera, right? I think uh, that's visually depicted at the end when Paprika and Atchen synthesize into, into a newborn. Um, yes. And, and that's yeah. how she defeats the chairman. She, she literally consumes him. Just yeah. we, when she, she, she's born out of the robot body of the man she loves. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. And then she just sucks up the, the chairman and defeats him that way. I think that that's a visual, I mean, at least as I interpreted it, a visual representation of what you just said. It's also interesting to look at in the lens of both Paprika and the the detective himself, because he has this recurring traumatic dream about chasing the person, right? But mm-hmm. like, we don't see that person. It's not revealed until, until the, end. the end of the film. So it's almost like this coming to terms with your own self, mm-hmm. like learning who yourself is. So you see that in the detective, but also Paprika, right? Because yes. it's interesting. You'll see throughout the film, anytime Paprika or really not even Paprika, but the doctor, whenever she's the doctor, and I forget blanking on the character name mm-hmm. at the moment, but she will look into the mirror and it's Paprika in the mirror, mm-hmm. which is sort of interesting. Yeah. Paprika is definitely her idealized self. She, she literally becomes like a superhero at one point in the dream. She, she looks like Goku right on the cloud. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, the Monkey King. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and she she becomes this like she becomes all sorts of like fantasy creatures. Like she becomes a mermaid at one point, and like they're they're different. Some are more fantastical, at least superficially, than others. But like they're they're her at her most capable. They're her being a hero in other people's minds, uh, in 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 their dreams. She she's she's able to construct and present herself in other people's dreams as she wants to be perceived by them. And that sort of imaginary space too and i guess that's another area where this is where like lacan comes into play because for lacan there's three different registers there's the real there's the symbolic and there's the imaginary and how those sort of break down this is going to be very rough the real is sort of ineffable it's this indescribable unsignifiable thing that's sort of perhaps out there Mm -hmm. or it's kind of a, it kind of escapes our ability to to signify to understand fully but we do it does the real can break through into our experience but primarily the imaginary 
and the symbolic are trying to prevent the real from cracking through and us experiencing the real directly. Oftentimes an experience of the real could be potentially traumatic or something, right? So so the, the three are the real, the imaginary and the symbolic. Correct. Okay. And uh, yeah, the real, like I said, is this, the ability to signify, and even that's not the greatest <laughs> definition, but we'll, we'll sort of go with that. It, can, it, works, sure. it works well enough, I think, for analysis of the film. The second is the symbolic. The symbolic is sort of the, um, a lot of times this is tied to symbolic order. So it'll be things like the law or the way to behave within society, mm-hmm. et cetera. The other determines, it's like the symbolic order is sort of like the, almost like if you're mapping on, because, you know, for Freud, it's like the superego, the id and the ego, right? And so there's, you can kind of see like that tri- that trinity sort of, not exactly, but kind of inspires Lacan in these three registers. And mm-hmm. so symbolic oftentimes is like this regime of signs too. It's like the dominant regime of capitalist signification, for example, mm-hmm. would be like a way to understand, okay, so like consumerism, blah, blah, blah. Like those are just kind of like shitty examples, but it gives you kind of a it picture, works. right? Yeah. It works. And then imaginary is, it's not imaginary as in, fantasy necessarily it's more like image based so that's why the imaginary applies very well to dreams mm. and the internet right the dream space and the internet virtual space are very similar like they said in the film right the un- dreams are where the unconscious or like dreams and the um internet are where the unconscious vents they're both areas where the repressed conscious mind vents exactly so again you can kind of see that formula operating within the traumatic dream of the detective Mm -hmm. because they keep repeating this which is almost like this Freudian death drive of this repetition of the traumatic experience Mm -hmm. almost as a defense mechanism against anxiety or like anxiety being a defense mechanism against the future so like this repetitive traumatic dream is sort of almost like trying to build up your psychic ability to resist trauma by reliving it yeah in a sense yeah and i mean the fact that he's chasing the, the killer that he's chasing in this sequence isn't it's ultimately revealed to be himself right um as, as, i mean at least that's how we saw it and i think that takes another i don't know if it necessarily maps very well directly onto the freudian death drive but it definitely maps onto this idea of you know, we have this sort of this sort of image of ourselves that we don't know, or like our inability to fully grasp our own. What's more yours than your own psyche, right? right? But even you cannot fully grasp your own psyche because the because the unconscious is not, even though it is structured like a language, yeah. and that doesn't mean it is structured like a specific language. It means that it operates within symbols. And what's interesting about the detec- the detective character too is among his the the opening sequence of his different dreams that he goes through. Uh, one of them is he's running security at a circus, and then he's suddenly put inside the cage by the by the the magician. And then the people that mob the cage all have his face. Remember that they're they're different people at first, but then mm-hmm. like the camera zooms in closer on their faces, and it's it's just all copies of his face. Yeah, yeah. which in itself is kind of interesting in this going more so like on the more wild like side of Lacan 
and into Deleuze and Guattari is this kind of like multiplicity of selves that exist within the one subject. I think that's in that going off that some potential. Yeah. And in the fact that how Paprika and Atchan defeat the director or the, the, the chairman is they, they, they merge together into one, into one, just all being. It's a weird reversal of this Lacanian because like you can't really, the fantasy self is one that you can't ever attain, right? It's always going to be this deferral. So it's interesting that she and the climax sort of comes to term with her unconscious and conscious selves and like unifies them. Yeah, I don't know exactly how to square that. But I, I think they unify for a moment to defeat the chairman. But like, I, I think by the end, when Atchan gets together with um, with the inventor, they're they're living separate again. I, I think Pepper yeah. is living as her own autonomous entity at that point, right. specifically I, in the I realm of the, correct, and specifically in the imaginary realm. I think she's she's gained some of the qualities of Paprika, I guess, right? I mean, she's she's more in tune with that fantasy self because that's what kind of allows her to be with the the man child. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, Paprika is still like out there existing in the world. I don't know, doing her superhero, helping people in their dreams with their mental illness thing. Something that's ironic is you know I was talking about Al this repetitive this repetition of the traumatic dream for the for the detective Detectives. is a way for anxiety or anxiety being a way to protect or like stabilize the subject there's a funny line from the chief so like the scientist guy like the bald yeah the scientist mad, mad scientist guy exactly oh, yeah. he goes he directly says i'm too anxious to dream yes <laughs> yes which i thought was pretty funny which is funny because i i don't dream much anymore I, I i still do more now um that we've been in quarantine for so long, but like I, for the longest time, I, I, I haven't dreamed in a long time. <laughs> I think part of it might be due, due to anxiety. Lacan has a quote. It's something like all sorts of things in the world act as mirrors and screens in particular have this, and this is even something where like faciality or something that the Les and Guattari talk about could be like this interesting thing to investigate with paprika because like i was talking about in terms of some of the cinematography elements right it's jumping into the television screen coming out of the um the camera coming out of the camera jumping in and out of the ad advertisement on the side of the truck etc like all these different sort of screens but also the detective himself whenever he's at the website for the bar right then that line between reality and dream world begin to it sort of collapses in on itself yeah, into this kind of virtual space. Lots of not just screen imagery, but um, mirror, window, and, and right. broken glass imagery in this movie abound. Yeah, um, I remember one sequence. Paprika is is exploring someone's dream, and she comes up to like what looks like a, a broken hole of glass right. yeah, yeah, um, yeah. in in just the fabric of reality, and she steps through it, and, and she's and then she's suddenly in like the 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 back lot of the movie right. screen, as it were. Which could be a good. I was actually thinking that might be a good analog for the real because okay. especially with the imagery of the way that it's this broken screen or piece of glass mm-hmm. portion because remember she kind of doesn't i forget if she punches it further to like make a bigger gap in the glass or if she just yeah removes a couple she, of pieces she pulls some shards away yeah yeah so she does that and then enters this other subaltern realm yeah and this it, is where this like quasi rape scene occurs as well doesn't it yeah I believe this is where that chase scene starts and then it culminates in, in, 
in that um, sequence where the the lackey doctor has her pinned down again. Another motif that occurs throughout the movie is butterflies. And the, the butterflies, other, like, right, metamorphosis right. and undergoing change. She mm-hmm. she's pinned down to the table like a uh, like yeah. you do with butterflies. Very much reminded me. There's a scene in the Doom Patrol comics where there's a very similar like there's one of the villains in Doom Patrol has this like room and it's like just this ridiculous collection of butterflies and shit lipidopterologist i think lipidopterology is a study of butterflies um i know nabokov was into that and um also it it, it kind of evokes that that fable of, of Lao like a man fell asleep and he was a butterfly and then when he woke up he wondered if he was just really a butterfly dream and he's he's now a man exactly happens to me all the time <laughs> <laughs> there's just kind of a interesting i think thing in the way that screens operate i don't know it's something to think about in terms of not only for lacan but i guess yeah just uh, any kind of like some of the i mean baudrillard Deleuze, and guattari will talk about screens as well and mm-hmm. also like the black hole effect and the white wall effect um yeah. which i don't know if i could dip into those well enough to to make that make sense but um it has just to do with, I think, the visual, so almost like this visual semiotics where um, it's extending, you know, signs and what they mean to like the actual human face and and so forth and like how that determines yeah, some of our, um, some of our subjectivity. What gets me about, um, about screens or I guess anything you do that involves like your brain, just even like reading a page, you're, you're looking at things that essentially have no meaning but you you create this world in your mind that that's similar but still separate from what other people imagine when they when they read the same thing and with things like online information like an article on a website or, or twitter or something just it's people constantly doing this over and over like every every instant that they're alive and and it creates similar but like i said still distinct worlds in their minds even if, if even if everyone's reading the same thing yeah in the same sequence like our faces can act as a screen a screen too, and it goes to yeah. this sort of way we generate ourselves as we imagine ourselves seen by the other, as though we're watching our yeah. own selves in this sort of theater, theatrical model of the unconscious or the conscious or consciousness. And, and maybe it's synthesizing that with what other people perceive us, that the, the end of, of, of Paprika Natchan becoming one one being composed of both parts how she perceives her, how she wants to be perceived herself versus how others do perceive her right and i don't know if that would be like i mean for the con it's be impossible for you to fully realize oneself as like to become this fully unified subject the only way to do that is to die <laughs> is to die like whenever you return to the sure. prior state and like that's kind of the whole thing with the death drive is to return to a more primitive state right well maybe with- is sort of the move so I don't know exactly. Like, there's a there's a lot of like little threads of psychoanalysis sure. here, but I don't. Yeah. You know, there's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know how much is coherent in terms of what he's doing um, consciously. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know I, I mean? Right, right. I don't know how much Satoshi Kon knows of Lacan or any of this stuff. Like, I don't, I don't know how conscious any of this of these things were. But um, again, like re- just regardless of artistic intent, the, these things are here that that you're picking up on, and um, and yeah, I don't know. Maybe the, maybe the idea that like. Paprika could do it just for one moment because she's the hero of the story, but like it, that that's why she separates at the like after that one moment yeah. to defeat the to defeat the chairman. Right, and I mean it could even be seen as like a larger overall fantasy that's not necessarily real explicit. in a sense, yeah, yeah. or explicit. Yeah, Cohn even said him. This is a direct quote on the 
parade and dreams themselves. In order for viewers to identify with the dream, I chose a parade, which makes one think automatically of other common dreams and unconscious states. Mm. There are very old characters like objects that are discarded by people today or religious symbols that people have forgotten. I think that even nowadays, people have forgotten the importance of dreams. Just about the the parade uh, motif, one of the things... I still have that music stuck in my head. The parade music. <laughs> it's great. It, yeah. It's so, it almost feels like you have to remember it every time, no matter what, like it, mm. it doesn't sound in your mind, like what it sounded like when you're watching it. Very dreamlike, but yeah, it's, it's an, it's an earworm and very, a very eclectic collection of items. Um, that seemed very, it, it, it worked on dream logic very much. It's interesting. Like I vaguely remember there being a lot of Japanese cultural icons present and strangely one like the one thing that was jumped out that was sort of relatively out of place is the um the statue of liberty yes yep the statue of liberty there were there were some Uh, knights like western knights in armor kind of like an, an old world european thing but yeah the statue of liberty was there too yeah, but it was a lot of like, you know, like the um, Japanese like temple arches right. and Durama um, dolls. Right. The dolls and even like Japanese, like I think I've seen them in other movies where like they're kind of like little fire pole stations that are like on the streets in Japan. There's like some really weird stuff like that. Like, yeah, stuff that if you're Japanese, you know what it is. But if you're American, it doesn't make any sense to you. If you borrow the visual dictionary of anime of anime common uh, objects like i from the library like i did when i was, <laughs> when I was 16 maybe you recognize more of them for me what the parade dream sort of was evocative of mostly was a couple of different things one potential and i mentioned this earlier on was the sort of uh the machinic unconscious so this being this notion of the unconscious as a less subject focused thing the way that Lacan or Freud would necessarily imply but not necessarily like entirely breaking from that either but it's more like recognizing that there's this machinic desire that it, that we produce we are desiring machines we produce desire and so this one dream of the other being the parade or the machinic it could like how it could fall into this mapping of the machinic unconscious is that you know, it's this flow it, because, right? It's like this flow of desire that's yeah, not a, really. It, you know what I mean? It's it kind is of a flow, like, yeah, because it keeps coming and it's a loud, kind of boisterous thing that it's kind of absorbing and like directing movement, mm. so forth, right? So there's like that's kind of one angle where I think machinic unconscious kind of like could potentially be mapped on to the way that the the parade specifically dream what that represents and what the, how that operates within the story. It also makes me think a lot of um, of being a kid watching parades. It's a very like strong, potent image of like murky childhood half memories of of standing on the side of the road because uh, like, par- parades are pretty universal experiences. Yes, yeah, yeah. and just having these half forgotten like snatches of of things that go past your 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 eyes, but then it ends suddenly because kind of just like dreaming, it seems to go on forever until just the last person, the last float in the parade comes by. There is a finite end to it. Yeah. Right. The other side of this parade dream, or something that it reminded me of, was Deleuze discussing the dream of the other, which he has the fa- this famous quote that 
if you're once you're stuck inside the dream of the other, you're fucked. And really? yeah, that's potent. Yeah, that's relevant. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Shit. Exactly. And so, just narratively, the way that the film discusses it, so you have a couple of the the inventor of the DC Mini and his friend, or like that helped him design it. Right. They're both trapped. They're both dreaming. They're or they're in REM sleep, but they're not dreaming. They're trapped in this dream of the other, this parade thing. And we even see that whenever the inventor himself is kind of in that robot and uh, his face is displayed on the screen, but presumably he doesn't have much actual direct agency hmm. himself. A very strong uh, metaphor for that context, like watch, having, watching something, but having no agency of yourself. It's, it's watching a movie. Right. Or a dream, right? You mm-hmm. can be, you know, because there can be dream paralysis. 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 What? Not dream paralysis. What is it? Sleep paralysis. Sleep paralysis. Sleep paralysis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Which, yeah. yeah when, you're, when you're kind of like locked up and you can't really move, but you, you're haunted by these visions. And for him specifically, I think because of his, he he doesn't, at least by the end of the movie, he he doesn't achieve his his childhood dream of, of being a director. So the, the very act, and he says throughout the movie, like, I don't like movies. So the very act of, the very act of watching cinema to him becomes that becomes it, it becomes this prison where he can only watch things and not affect them it is interesting though that consciously he says he doesn't like movies but when we're in that dream and he's they're all very movie like he's right they're but, all movies yeah. not to mention but the point you made earlier the scene you referenced about him discussing the 180 degree rule right like mm-hmm. he seems very in, very much aware of and invested in filmmaking well, yeah, he, he, remember that, so he remembers that stuff from when he was a kid and it was his passion. Exactly. So he's, it's almost like the logical, the conscious mind repressing this desire to become yes. a filmmaker. And that's why he continues this repetition of this unfinished case right. is the film that he well, I believe, doesn't complete, right? I believe the unfinished case also is he, he never found out who killed his friend. Ah, okay. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, I, I think it's notable that what does he do in his conscious life to distract himself to, to distract himself from that unfulfilled desire? He becomes a police officer, which is very much, I think, I would say that's like very much in the realm of the symbolic. Yes, yes, sense. yeah, absolutely. He, he cleaves to that because uh, he has to uphold the yeah, law and the order. Exactly. In, in waking life. Right. right. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a good call out. On that symbolic note is. Deleuze often talks about like the despotic regime of signs. So that would be like. The, sign, the semiotics of capitalism or the signs of capitalism. Right. Society and culture and everything is overcoated by, by capitalist desire and signs and signification mm. and that, that symbolization. That's the dominant force that kind of the, it's interesting that the, the chairman himself is sort of a representation of this as well, like this sort of paternal, um, really like an Oedipal father almost figure that he represents and i think i already said this but visually he reminded me very much of like the classical depictions of the buddha um in terms of like his his age appearance like age but still kind of like statuesque appearance like his elongated earlobes yeah. the way his key, his eyes were like always kind of half closed but like in a serene looking manner um it, it just brought to mind like images of, of icons of the buddha and um and to me i don't know if i'm reading too much into that visual similarity but like the buddhist whole thing is is trying to eliminate desire eliminate the yeah c- come, desire come being the, the cause lack. of all suffering yeah yeah but that's very much at odds with that character's stated ultimate goals that we find out his his ultimate desires he, yeah. he still has them and they lead to his destruction 
it's interesting too, though. You, you could probably even like map Oedipus onto the chairman and the other scientist and then Paprika mm. in that sense, because the, but I mean, it's kind of being too on the nose because Oedipus is not like, it's not literally a sexual desire for the mother. It's this like, it's, it's this relation, it's this relational model for the way that subjects are developed because it's like, you know, you're as the infant, you don't understand, like you're not within the symbolic order. You don't understand the, the law or like the big other yet. And so your first exposure to that is the, the family and the mother and father's relations. And the mother, the mother is the one that basically is providing for the infant's needs directly, but they're in, and then that places them in conflict for attention with the other parent with the father, right? right? Because the father at the end of the day does take the mother's attention away from the right. infant. Right. And that extends to sexuality. And so that's kind of this metaphor of the edible complex, not literally to quote Tony Soprano, not everybody wants to fuck their mother. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then, so you're, you're saying, or not you're saying, but Fred was saying like the, these models construct the adult, the rational adult person's like eventual sexual desires and in, in, in shapes how they how they well, yeah like how they flow not they don't mean that every every guy literally wants to have sex with his mother right yeah it's more like this kind of if that process is carried out correctly <laughs> or like the ch- the infant develops its own subjectivity healthily and like identifies with the the parent of the opposite sex and that's like right. considered the healthy way for the thing but that doesn't always happen there can be neuroses that develop right. in the child because of this developmental process of of uh of oedipus speaking of all this freud stuff i don't know i don't know if this is reading too much into it but um the scene where we first meet i'm gonna look at the, the character i have it right here the the director i mean the, the inventor when we first meet him Tokita, I keep forgetting that. And Atchan meets him. He's in the elevator and he's stuck. He can't get out. And she pulls him out. That is that almost like a visual <laughs> birthing meta- like I mean it <laughs> touchstone. Like yeah. she 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 pulls him out of this mechanical womb. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, that's a good call. And then she comforts him immediately. And like and then as we realize she had this repressed memory of, of them kind of bonding and, and she does have affection for him in, in specifically in, in an adult's romantic sexual sense. I don't know. It's pretty interesting. I, I hadn't thought about that enough to like give a good breakdown now on the fly, but yeah, I, I didn't potentially think, could I didn't be. Think, I didn't think of it like as I was watching it, but just you, you brought up all the Freud stuff and, and thinking of different sequences. To get this back to the dream of the other, something I think that was pretty interesting here was the way that this collective dream of the of the parade like it absorbs the those those two guys like the inventors like i said they're in the REM sleep stage but they're not actually dreaming right deluz has this great quote about dreams having a terrifying will to power of their own okay so i thought that very well mapped on to like the way that that parade dream functions as kind of like this it could be like a despotic regime of signs itself as like it's right. It's kind of like drawing more people into this capitalist overcoding of, of whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, the, so that's kind of one way you could look at it, but I, I don't know. I like that will to power of the dream itself, of the dream of the other 
has a very like apocalyptic kind of vibe to it, right? Which maps onto the way that the film sort of climaxes in this battle between Paprika and the uh, chairman himself. And the chairman himself has a relevant quote here. He says, um, "Science is nothing but a piece of trash before a profound dream." Yeah. And he he he's mm-hmm. been anti he's been against the project the whole time. I mean, it's arguably why he pushes it. Right. But he, he the idea of the overwhelming kind of religious awe of like of dreams um, and he eventually when when he breaks the barrier between dream and reality he he becomes like this dark demonic kind of like demiurge figure towards the end when he starts to consume all of tokyo it's kind of a weird though i wonder because cone himself says that dreams are sort of have this like forgotten element to them or he seemed to be mm-hmm. on the side of dreams as almost like this lost object that we don't dream anymore which kind of actually fits onto the chairman's sort of viewpoint. Like the yes. quote that you just gave, right? Doesn't that sort of, that shows like this reverence for dreams mm-hmm. and this, like you said, this sort of anti and, and prim- yeah. yeah, this sort of like primitivist idealization of, of the dream space or like the dreams functionality in society or what have you. Well, on a character level, the, the chairman's revealed to be hypocritical to some extent or, or at least deceitful. Um, in in his views, so I don't know. I don't know how much like good faith we're supposed to put right. in. How much stock was supposed to put into him saying that specifically? Mm-hmm. Maybe sure. like I, I, that might be Cohen expressing some sincere sentiments on his own through through a deceitful line from a deceitful character. Yeah, because another thing he says, the chairman directly says, is that he wants to heal all deficiencies. Yes, which. Here's where I saw like, okay, so the chairman could like represent the analyst in traditional psychoanalysis because the analyst goal is to heal the deficiency in the neurotic subject or okay. the neurotic patient, right? Like the goal being to resolve whatever neuroses is causing them to not be able to behave successfully within the world, right? Sure. So I thought maybe taking a little bit of liberty, like this could be almost this Lacan or Freud as the analyst that wants to uh, that wants to oh. universalize Oedipus okay. as a way to heal all deficiencies within the subject in the psychoanalytic way, but it's not really it's not a true universal, and that's the whole point of like what Deleuze and Guattari go into in anti Oedipus itself. So you're saying his 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 intention is futile because you you can't you can't universalize that. Right. Or like this, I don't know. I just saw, because right, that that line, I don't know. It was interesting that like, what is his goal of the chair or what is the chairman's kind of goal? He mentions explicitly healing deficiencies. Right. Okay. How is he going to heal? How does, is he going to remove deficiencies Mm -hmm. by taking away the ability of the individual subjects to experience the dream? Again, here's a contradiction within the chairman's motives because he says that he wants to preserve dreams and like eliminate technology but then why use technology to eliminate dreams like right i don't know if that's supposed to stand in for like not understanding our own selves or being able to come into understanding or countenance with our own desire or the the inherent contradiction of of any any serious attempt to to like any serious undertaking like they're they're not necessarily self-defeating, but inherently contradictory. Right. It's almost like in that construction of the self there too, like if you want to go that route, because like you never really reach this imagined 
fantastical notion of yourself, mm. right? There's always going to be that gap between how you sort of the ideal self that you strive towards and the actual self that you actually are in your behavior, but yet it's not so clear cut because you as the individual don't really have a good grasp on your own unconscious well, self. Well, that's why Atchan needs to have her alter ego. It needs to have paprika yes. in order yes. to safely go into other people's dreams. Exactly. I mean, exactly. That's definitely a manifestation of this imaginary self or like fantastic, the fantasy of the self. And I, I think that's why she's the one who can safely go into other people's dreams and actually help them because it's it's not her self as she perceives herself. It's it's this it's a superhero that other people perceive that she can present that, that she can like act as like a prophylactic going into other people's minds. Yeah. Before we get too much further, I do want to read this like series of, or this quote from uh Deleuze on the dream of the other. Cause it's, I don't know. I think it's just a good one. I think it's yeah, yeah. kind of funny and like, it just maps so well onto this parade aspect of uh, paprika. People's dreams are always devouring and threatened to engulf us. The other's dream is very dangerous. Dreams have a terrible will to power, and each one of us is a victim to the other's dreams. Even the most gracious of young girls is a terrible devourer, not because of her soul, but because of her dreams. Beware of the other's dream, because if you're caught in the other's dreams, you're done for. <laughs> Which I think is just a great quote. Yeah. 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 And um, the young girl being a devourer. I mean, that's how the movie ends, too. That's how the right. movie yeah. ends. Right. That's that is how the movie ends. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that might be reading too much into it. Like, I don't know enough about Cone to know, like, sure. is sure, he yeah. doing like me and kind of like half ass understanding these psychoanalytic <laughs> concepts and like putting them in his movies? Or is he like a like, real like student of psychoanalysis? Yeah. Like, I, I know me and Lewis, we. I mean, or does it matter? And you know, that's, that's another a, question. It's too. the thing; it kind of doesn't matter because, right. does like, yeah, exactly. Death of the author is kind of a meme at this point, but it's it's still a valid. Yeah, art critique term. Like, I, I I think intention does matter, but only insofar as you give it weight in your own analysis of a of a piece of art. Um, you you can take it as seriously as you want to, and um, even if we take the the extreme example, like artist intent matters zero whatsoever. I think it still speaks to the power of these kind of fundamental totemic images of an infant girl devouring the attempt to erase the 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 demonic attempt to erase the the membrane between reality and dreaming um and then growing into an adult just adult woman by consuming that that demonic entity and, and, and consuming it and growing literally before our eyes into a like an adult by defeating the phallocrat represented by the chairman Something else that's interesting too, like if you wanted to do a Hegelian reading of this, I think specifically of the parade, like it's a Mm. very interesting one because it's sort of, in that sense, the parade is kind of a good thing because it's almost like the Geist, like it's the universal spirit. So it's okay that these individuals are becoming in a way like, I don't know, subservient to the dream, the universal dream of the Geist like the universal spirit that is represented by like this aggregate movement right Mm -hmm. of universal spirit towards perfection like the universal the eternal um universal recognizing itself you know that's getting a little bit into hegel stuff but i don't know that's just another reading i sort of picked up on um it's not necessarily neither here nor there or fits that like i don't know how 
you can integrate that into the rest of the film itself. But one that I just wanted to mention briefly, just because we're talking about Deleuze and, and Lacan, who has a more Lacan has a more Hegelian framework in terms of his style of analysis and logic. And then I think the last thing that I kind of want to comment on is it's not a huge thing, but one that I thought was somewhat interesting. So in reading France, uh, Jean-Francois Lyotard's libidinal economy, one of the things that he does very early on in the book is challenge this theatrical metaphor for the unconscious, which is interesting because the film seems to explicitly rely heavily yes. on this metaphor of the theater mm -hmm. and unconscious yeah. having this, that being like this perfect metaphor yeah. for them, which I just think is interesting. I don't have a great fleshed out analysis there, but I don't know. I just thought that was, that was something that I immediately picked up on through mm -hmm. the, the imagery of the theater that's so heavily relied on in the film. And um, yeah, the, the detective, we, we already talked about like how he supplemented his, his, his childhood pain of, of losing his best friend into, into being a cop, but also like, like the movie literally ends on him entering a theater yeah. based on yeah. Paprika's explicit recommendation to him. Go see, I think right. it's called kids dreaming. Mm, um, and also dreaming machine, I think dream it, machine dream machine might be one of the things because he passes some other movie posters on his way into the theater in some of, some of other Satoshi Kon's other movie posters are there too in that scene. Um, but yeah, I, I think the the title Dream Machine pops up somewhere, Lewis. I forget where. Yeah, well, it was supposed to be his next movie, and then he died. Oh, in real life, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think it, it is there in the yeah in real life. This is his next movie, but it's also there in the end of the film as sure. well. I might have one other thing that I could bring up really briefly. Would be back to Paprika. There is a scene where. She looks in the mirror, not as Paprika, and in the mirror she shows up as Paprika. Oh, but and she's... right before that, the inventor says, "You should act more like Paprika." I think that's when they're walking across the elevated covered bridge between the two buildings in the office. Right. And she's running past the the glass window, and in, in the reflection of the glass window, she's Paprika. Yeah. I mm -hmm. think. Could be. <laughs> yeah, know. yeah. There, there's a lot. Um, like I said earlier, at some point, like a lot happens in the 90 minutes, and it feels kind of, oh, yeah, kind of like almost like a, a much better paced, compressed version of like a season, a few seasons of anime. But yeah, that that happens at some point. And in, in, in the very opening, like the pop song that we get at the opening, um, we get like the sequence of of Paprika going through like downtown Tokyo, kind of like being hit on by some by some douchebags, and like she escapes from them. A lot of scenes of light will flash across a mirrored surface and she'll change from either Achan to Paprika yeah, back yeah, again. Yeah. Right, right. She goes through screens and becomes either Paprika or Achan, yeah. Mm -hmm. but yeah, I think that kind of effectively goes, you know, that pretty much tackles a lot of the content that I wanted to get to. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's just a couple of other random bits of like imagery that I'm thinking of that I didn't point out in our like cinematography section. I mean, one of those I discussed was the chairman that becomes the, he sort of takes on this living tree like visage as earlier on though, he's the face of the tree as well, which was yes. like a really cool yeah. visual image. Another one that was- He becomes a Dark Souls boss essentially. Another <laughs> one of these cooler portal like uh, metamorphic 
um, transitions was whenever she paprika gets swallowed by the whale mm. who is him which was a great that was a really amazing sequence talk about freud's oceanic feeling like <laughs> <laughs> um and because if i'm not mistaken the chairman is the whale right like he the and then he like jumps out of the water and like chases her vertically and then like she s- swallows yeah swallows and then she's spit out not spit out but like blown out of the nose hole like in this sort of very and then she actually resembles pinocchio and then she falls into a yeah just like onto the parade again from yeah the, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah the the, the chase scenes the, the cuts and the transitions are absolutely insane and again just another argument as to why this needs to be an animated feature and nothing else right um i can't i mean it would look so crappy it would, it would look so dated if it was like live action supplemented with vfx but yeah, I don't know if uh, either of you had any anything of importance to add beyond what we've already discussed. I'm kind of at the end of my yeah comments, sure. unless someone else has anything that we could kind of piggyback off of. I know Tokita, the the inventor of the DC Mini, like his his dream self, his idealized version of himself. He's in a robot body, which I think is fine. Yeah, yeah. He, trans- <laughs> he transcends the limitations of his flesh and he in in his self image. Um, the the detective, uh, his. He, when he rescues Paprika or Achan, he um he does so by like imagining himself as a hero cop with posing with a babe on like a movie screen and he kisses her and like firework fireworks go off in the background. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's, he saves her through the powers of Dude's Rock. Dude's <laughs> Rock is a dream. <laughs> what is I have a question. What is the DC mini? Does that did they ever explain what it stands for? Like what the no. DC no, stands for? Hmm. I was trying to think like if the if the initials dc are significant for any reason yeah um, I, I imagine it's just it stands for like Dreamcatcher mini or something like probably something very dc mini is just some when i first saw this movie i had a whole bit about calling something a dc mini but i can't remember what the what it was pardon me i've got to go get the dc mini this wiki entry points out is it resembles kind of a bluetooth episode which is yeah uh, yeah that's true certainly true yeah i don't think it I don't think it's ever explained. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is fine. It's just very it's a very specific name. I'm sure Satoshi Khan had had some explain explanation for it, but we'll never know. Uh, unless like we I don't know, watch the director commentary and he says it maybe. I guess another thing that just comes to mind that I thought was very effective, um, the nonsense talk that when people's when people were possessed um, when, oh, when, yeah. when their when their dream when their waking selves were invaded when, when when their dream worlds were invaded even when they were awake um they would spout off just random gibberish and it truly felt incomprehensible in a way that like movie gibberish doesn't often sometimes it truly felt just like schizophrenic ravings that that have no connection to any coherence in 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 um in a waking sense anyway yeah and i thought that definitely had some kind of I mean, that's another area where I think Deleuze and Guattari have a little bit of relevance in terms of the analysis of the film in that sense, or at least just the strong, or maybe it's just the outcome of the strong psychoanalytic framework that Cohn is at least kind of riffing on, broadly speaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, the tone of the whole movie felt very interesting. Uh, it, felt very, it felt really anime and like oddly poppy and bright. Yeah, it's very dark uh, in terms of content, or story, but yeah, yeah it de- definitely wasn't like a 
dour kind of a movie. Yeah, no, it that, was very no, bright. Yeah, yeah, not at all. Um, there was an exuberance to it. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. almost almost like, like mania. Yeah, um, right. Yeah, exactly. That that's definitely. I mean, a movie's tone. Nothing is nothing is more deliberate than that for for in a lot of in a lot of movie stuff. But yeah, it, it was just so weird. Like a lot of the music was like very like, oh, this is bright, happy J-pop. Like for right. for, yeah, yeah. for a back to school anime or something. The rape scene is one we didn't really get into, but that's maybe one of the more interesting visual sequences throughout the film. And calling yeah. it a rape, like it's, I say that because like he literally penetrates her, pulls like, her open, crotch, yeah, yeah. like he right. crotch pushes first his hand into her hand, crotch, yeah. and like slides it up and like cracks, peels her open, yeah, peels open paprika shell to reveal the doctor. Well, I said paprika was a prophylactic yeah, yeah. of some sense, right. and that's one of the reasons I chose that word because that that sequence specifically uh, and and yeah and that's the sequence when she's pinned down like a butterfly on the table right we talked about it a bit but i guess we didn't i don't know just like a very intense i remember the, specifically the first time i saw the movie that being mm. like one of the more yeah. intense creepy visual sequences of the whole thing that's definitely and, the most and i think scene. the sound editing in the scene because it yeah. has this sort of sloshing around that was very like <laughs> but then when in the skin drops it's yeah. just like fabric dropping right it's like plop, it just yeah mm-hmm. that effectively kind of wraps us up i don't know if either of you want to do some do your plugs before we uh call it a day uh just follow us uh you'll find it somewhere <laughs> at, at proletarian c uh no spaces on twitter um oh, and right, then right. from there we have everything linked um we're on yeah, instagram facebook we have a letterbox, I think. We do. The Facebook I haven't actually updated in uh, almost a year, so fuck that. But, but it's there. Um, is the point. It's there. It exists. Follow it, I guess. Oh, we're also on Patreon. Yeah, and of course. Patreon. And then I'll, I have my I'll, other. I'll throw links in the uh, show notes, of course. Sure. And Thank I will um, mention my other my other podcast. Uh, it's One True Pod. Um, that's easy to, enough to find on on Twitter as well. And I don't think we have an Instagram, but we have a, we have a Patreon there too. And that is a uh, religious focused. Um, movie and media uh, podcast uh, with my two friends uh, Claire and June specifically through like kind of a Catholic focus because all three of us have Catholic background but um, not all three of us are currently Catholic so it's like different different iterations different different views of, of Catholic of, of media through a Catholic lens and again that's one true pod well this will be Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry signing off for the week thanks for having us it was fun to be here yeah thanks again including the ultimate form of security, which is the whole state of things, pure violence without option. This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I meant is the following. With nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, Logotomized people, as in uh, block work orange.